your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Charlie O'Connor. Charlie, what's going on, man? Hey, Dmitry. I'm doing a, a fair amount uh, more work than I thought I was going to be doing during the Stanley Cup Finals, given the fact the Flyers haven't played in two months. Uh, but aside from that, doing quite well. Yeah, I uh, I did not wake up on Tuesday expecting to see a trade, especially a three-teamer that I would classify as pretty spicy by NHL standards. Um, but maybe I should have because I do follow Charlie O'Connor on Twitter. And you've been not hinting, but you've kind of been laying the the groundwork for an inevitable trade here. I think the timing of it is certainly a bit of a surprise, but I don't think anyone that's been following um, should be, you know, caught off guard by the fact that a trade did happen. It's just that the, the timing certainly is surprising. Not only the fact that there are Stanley Cup finals games still going on, and I feel like I <laughs> myself am like knee deep in the coverage of that, but also the fact that the team in question's president of hockey ops is literally calling the games <laughs> on a national broadcast as well. I mean, you you really can't almost like can't make this up, right? It's like it's a it's it's a script that just writes itself. I am fascinated to see how Keith Jones is going to discuss a trade that he was very much involved in on the broadcast tomorrow while calling the game for TNT. I think that is, I don't know if we've ever seen anything quite like that. When we talked to to the new GM, Danny Briere yesterday after the trade, he said, yeah, you know, in the entire lead up to, to the trade, I was talking with Keith Jones on the phone at least four to five times a day about, you know, who we wanted, the details, the planning, everything. So Jonesy truly has been doing double duty here. And now we're going to get to, see him as a still paid employee of TNT talking about a trade that he was pretty instrumental in actually executing. So going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Yeah. Is he just sitting between the benches? Like he's got out of view, just like he's like texting Danny Breer on his phone, just little takes little, little nuggets that he's found from, uh, from watching the games and, uh, and, and all their plans. I mean, yeah, there's a lot going on there. I'm, you know, let's break this down from the Flyers' perspective and really just like hone in on on all the moving parts here, right? Because it feels like this all started obviously what in May um, when you know the the team or the organization took a page out of the Rangers' playbook from a couple of years ago, right? They like released that that letter that really kind of tries to um, start repairing the relationship, I guess, with fans in terms of like at least openly communicating with them about the reality of the situation that everyone has been watching in watching this team over the past couple of years and what they need to do, where they're at and how they're going to accomplish it. Right. Then they have this wholesale change that goes along with that in their front office. And it's a bunch of new names and faces. Um, I thought your coverage of this was, was really good in sort of outlining the fact that there was reason for optimism Certainly, and everything you everyone you talk to would say, listen, like Danny Breer um is a really thoughtful guy who may not have necessarily this the the prototypical experience for this job, but isn't like it's gonna come completely coming out of left field. It's not like he's unprepared for this. It's just, you know, it's it it is his first time. At the same time, though, you know, you've got this organization that has all of this scar tissue um from previous issues where it felt like they valued the the person's affiliation to the team or organization as opposed to like actual merit for this job. And so there was a lot of balls to kind of juggle there in the unveiling of this Danny Breer, Keith Jones pairing in terms of 
how much of a change it really was representing versus sort of the status quo that's been the case for the Flyers for however many years now. Yeah, I think, and I think this may have got lost in the coverage a little bit. I hope it didn't, but I think it did to a point just because I was pretty much the only person locally who was making that criticism of, you know, at least only person that covers the team as a writer. There were certainly people on radio, on podcasts that were making the criticism, but I I was kind of a lone wolf in terms of saying, well, you're just hiring a former player and your color commentator to run the team. This doesn't feel very new at all. This feels very flyers, but really the, the main criticism about it for me is it was never necessarily that like these guys were destined to be bad, that Danny Breer was destined to be a bad GM, that Keith Jones is destined to do a bad job as president of hockey operations. It was more that, you know, if you're limiting your realistic scope of your hires to people we already know that probably played for the team, like, yeah, there's a chance you're going to find someone who's real, real good at their job, but presumably the chance would be significantly better if the pool were expanded to be everyone in hockey that could plausibly be good at this job. Like you're just cutting down on the likelihood that you find a great GM because you're dealing with a sample size of 200 and other teams are dealing with a sample size of thousands Mm -hmm. because they're opening themselves up to the possibility of hiring someone who didn't play for the team. So that was more of my skepticism. My skepticism was more on the process. However, like there's nothing to say that, Danny Briere might just be a real good GM. And maybe the fact that he played for the team is, he just so happens to play for the team that they happen to find, you know, a really, really good GM who just so happened to be a former flyer and same thing with Keith Jones. And I think that's where this pro rough trade that went down yesterday went a long way towards kind of easing the concerns because it's not necessarily that Jones, that Jones and Briere, Briere in particular, like they had to hit a home run with their first trade. And while I think this is a good trade, I don't think this was a home run. Oh my God, they robbed everyone in this deal sort of sort of trade, particularly on the Kings side. But I do think it it eases a lot of the concerns that Briere is in over his head that he was just given the job because he was in the organization and he played for the team and Comcast Spectacor knows him like. You don't pull off a trade like this, which is a three-team deal. It required some creativity. It required negotiating with two separate GMs. Like You don't pull off a trade like this if you just don't know how to do the job. So Briere, at the very least, passed the test of, you know how to do this job, and you're not getting fleeced on your first try. And I think that's where, for me, the real positive uh, response comes from from this trade is just the relief of, oh, good, Danny Briere could be a good GM. Yeah. Well, I think the, I think the, you know, you, you framed it as skepticism, I think like, or trepidation, I think it was totally warranted um, just because of the fact, like I've, I've spoken to executives with other teams that would say that the Flyers were one of their least favorite teams to deal with in trade negotiations over the past couple of years, because you would be speaking with someone on the other side of the phone from the flyers and you wouldn't actually, it was almost like an empty calorie conversation because you wouldn't actually have confidence that they really had the authority or, or unilateral power to actually pull off whatever you were talking about. Right. Like it had to run through so many people and like lines of communication were so disoriented that 
it was just, it made for a mess in terms of actually trying to get anything done. Right. And so in this case, I think the trying to waiting for waiting for the first domino to fall to see whether uh, we could actually confidently proclaim whether things in terms of the way they operate and run their business would be different was was fair to wait to see what that happens right and it's only one move but I I think that's correct I think it's fair to be legitimately optimistic that at least things could be different moving forward um, not only because of what they accomplished in this trade, we're going to get into the actual return and what they got back for Provorov and the contracts they took back in return, but also I think most importantly, the route or the tack they took to get there, right? Involving a third team, weaponizing the cap space with the clear objective of doesn't matter that we're taking on this money on guys who probably won't help us for the next year or two because that doesn't matter. We don't really care. We're going to suck anyways. We may as well use that rather than filling it with a player who's going to marginally improve our chances of winning on a Tuesday night in January next year. Instead of using our cap space on that, we're going to buy all of these future draft picks, which could theoretically help us quite a bit down the line when we're actually ready to cash in on them. And so I think that's what this trade signaled and represented. And so if you view it from that lens, regardless of whether you think they could have gotten a bit more for all the money they took on or what have you, um, or your evaluation of Helge Grands as a prospect, ultimately just what they settled on has to be encouraging from my perspective. Oh, absolutely. And and I think the, the key underlying point here is that, look, the Flyers, as, as you noted a few minutes ago, they've been pivoting towards this we're rebuilding plan, this we're rebuilding message, really dating back to February when John Tortorella sent the letter right after the All-Star break. Then in the lead up to the trade deadline, both Chuck Fletcher and John Tortorella came out and more or less said we're rebuilding without actually saying the word rebuild. Then Chuck Fletcher gets fired. Danny Briere comes in as the first person to actually say the word rebuild. Then Dave Scott, who was the, the, the chairman and CEO of Comcast Spectacore, the company that owns the Flyers, he retires. He's replaced by Dan Hilferty, who I did an interview with in early April, and he reiterated that, yes, we're cool with rebuilding. I'm on board. Ownership is on board. And I think number one, that was probably a large part of why there was, as you mentioned, a feeling that like who's actually running the show here, because I think that from above and don't get me wrong, Chuck Fletcher had his had his flaws and by all means, mm -hmm. but I don't think he was ever going to be permitted to rebuild at the very least until February right? ownership was not on board with the idea of blowing it up and they finally got on board in February, I think. Then Fletcher was decided that he wasn't the guy, which I think had to be done. I think a house cleaning had to be done. And then Dave Scott leaves, and now you got all new people in. Now you have new people to sell this idea of a rebuild, and that was good. That was that was a good thing. However, they still need to go out there and do something, something tangible, rather than just saying we're rebuilding, to show that they're actually rebuilding. And I think that was also a big thing about this move is that you trade Ivan Provorov, that is as much of a sign as you can possibly give that, yup, we're in it for the long haul, we're rebuilding, we're giving away our 25 a minute a night number one defenseman, whether he's good enough to be a number one defenseman or not, that's what he was being used as, and someone's going to have to take those minutes, and the Flyers are probably going to be hurt by that because it's going to have a trickle-down effect in the short term to the rest of the defense core, guys who aren't good enough to be threes are going to be threes and whatnot, but what they're saying is, 
the future assets because of rebuilding matter more than, as you put it, winning a game in January mm -hmm. on Tuesday. And to send that message, it meant a lot more than guys getting up in front of a podium and saying we're rebuilding. This is one of those actions speak louder than words. And there's no way you can look at this trade and really break down all the details of it and not think the Flyers are definitely rebuilding. And that's huge. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the timeline of that because obviously the Flyers were a bad hockey team by any measure last season, right? But I think it's hard to, from the outside, it's easy to say that, but actions do speak louder. The words, as you said, and based on the way they acted last offseason, for example, right? None of those moves necessarily signaled an organization to me that was acknowledging and accepting its reality, right? And not that they were necessarily like, oh, we're going all in and we're going to contend for a Stanley Cup, but it certainly wasn't the way a rebuilding team acts properly. And I think there's a key delineation between being bad and being bad on purpose, right? Like there's there's teams <laughs> that that wind up falling into being bad and they wind up picking high in the lottery for consecutive years, but it's not because of anything they intentionally did. And that's almost like even more depressing, right? Cause it's like, wow, at least we could have accumulated other draft picks or, you know, used our cap space accordingly to buy future picks down the road or, or get cultivate young players, as opposed to just kind of having this older group that is taking up resources, but we're not actually earning anything from it. And if you look at this flyers team, the last three drafts, they had five, six and six draft picks in those three years, right? Now they were good in 2019-20, but the past couple of years, that's a tough thing to reconcile. And this came up in a mailbag question um, maybe a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago on the show that I did. But someone asked me like, okay, if you were taking over a team, what would be the least appealing team <laughs> to take over, right? And I think the Coyotes were an, like the easy pick just because you don't know how much money you're actually going to be able to spend. You don't know where you're playing in terms of rink or city, right? There's like so many other complications beyond on ice stuff. But if you're a smart hockey mind, like at least you're working with a ton of draft capital and a ton of high end prospects and very low expectations. There's no pressure at all. In this case, if you're Danny Breer and you're stepping into this job, I really do think once he inherited it, it was the 32nd ranked organization in terms of, current contracts, draft capital, and prospects that are already in place. And so there's obviously a lot of work to be done. I've seen Flyers fans who are frustrated, like, all right, well, it's good that this happened, but I really wish it had happened last year. I guess that's kind of crying over spilled milk at this point. Like, there's nothing you can do other than move forward. But it does feel like this is an important first step, right? Like, if you are really going to be serious about properly rebuilding and doing it the right way, you have to start somewhere, and there's going to be some difficult decisions along the way that are to come as well beyond just this trade. Um, but this does really feel like it was, it was, I mean, it was essential and it was probably good to get it done sooner rather than later. Yeah. And the frustrating part about the, the previous calendar year, and you hinted at this was the flyers were in this weird half in half out, which is the worst possible strategy for a team to have. Like either you're trying to go for it, or you're trying to position yourself to go for it a few years down the line by building up assets and whether you call it a rebuild, a retool, whatever. Well, the Flyers were like sort of trying to do both. Like you trade away Claude Giroux at the trade deadline last year. That to me, I mean, this is your star player, your franchise player for over a decade. That to me should have been the moment where you say to yourself, okay, we're rebuilding. This is the end of an era. We're starting over. 
But then two weeks before that, they signed Rasmus Ristolainen to a massive extension. Then a few weeks after that in the offseason, they trade three draft picks for Tony D'Angelo. Then before the pucks drop for game one, they signed Travis Sanheim, who I like a lot as a player, but you sign him to an eight-year extension with a massive cap hit. And like he had a bad year last year. I still think he's a good player, but like that's not what you do if you're trying to rebuild. Like Travis Sanheim's in his late 20s. You don't if you're if you're as bad as the Flyers were the previous two years, you don't sign a guy in his late 20s to an eight-year contract extension that is always going to get worse as it goes on like the whole point of signing a guy to a long-term extension is if you're you're competing now you're getting good years in the beginning and you're going to take your medicine to the end when the flyers are bad now and pr- presumably if they ultimately choose to rebuild when they get good that's going to be when sandheim's contract is real bad it made zero sense and they just kept making moves like that where you know it just it showcased very little it just didn't showcase a plan. There was no cohesive plan. It was like, well, we're not going to go for Johnny Goudreau because we're not ready, but we are going to give away draft picks for Tony D'Angelo and sign Travis and I do an eight-year contract. Like it, None of it actually made any sense. It seems like now, at the very least, the moves they are making, the direction they're making, makes sense. Now, whether those moves will ultimately be correct, whether they ultimately draft well enough to execute on a rebuild, that remains to be seen. But at least now we're judging them on a coherent plan. Whereas before, over the past year, we were judging them on a plan that made literally no sense at all. Yeah, you forgot the, uh, obviously on a smaller scale than a lot of those, but giving Nick Delorier a four-year deal with two years worth of of modified no-trade clauses in there. Now, obviously, once you give Nick Delorier a four-year deal, the tr- no-trade clause is kind of implied because that's probably a contract yeah. that's not going to be moved well, in those first two years. But I, you um, know, I, I don't, I don't know about that. Like you look at guys oh, like man. Ryan Reeves, I, I feel like there's. I, look, I'm not saying that Nick Delorier should have value around the NHL, but fighters like that who are tough and when teams decide they need grit, like I think if they really wanted to, they could probably get like a fifth or sixth for Delorier. Now that's more a commentary on the NHL than it is. Yeah about Delorier's value but uh yeah the Delorier contract it's funny I, I will say about the Delorier contract then we can get back to Provorov I actually think that like that contract to me makes more sense ne- like with where the Flyers are now than it did with where the Flyers were last summer because like if you sign a Nick Delorier you're basically saying we value toughness over actually having a viable fourth line because if he's right. going to play every game Ford line is not going to dry play. It's not going to score much. That's just the way it is. However, if you're rebuilding and like, I'm a, look, I'm a stack guy, but I do believe that there's an element of like young kids who are developing probably feel a little bit tougher and a little bit more willing to be flashy. If they've got Nick Deloria on the bench, who's willing to beat the crap out of a guy. If, if, you know, he gets challenged for being a little cocky out there, like, I'm fine for the Flyers to have Nick Delorier for another three years being the policeman to maybe help the kids feel a little bit better in their development because having a good fourth line, who cares? Flyers aren't winning a cup anyway. It doesn't matter. No, I'm I'm with you. It actually makes a lot more sense now because it's like, otherwise you're like, all right, we're, we think we're a good team. This is going to be like a a nice finishing touch for our roster. It's like, oh oh my God, that, that, I mean, you know, you mentioned the Salinan one just based on the timing of, of, of last summer. If you stretch the timeline back, though, we should mention. And I think this was actually, sadly, now that I think about it, the last time I've had you on the show, and it was part of the incentive of having you back on here 
under these circumstances was it feels like, you know, we finally have a chance to praise the Flyers a little bit because it feels like the tenor of most of the conversations in the past couple of years has been awfully bleak. But at that time, you know, this is an organization that completely unironically gave up the 14th and 39th overall picks for wrist line and so that they could have the right to give him that $25 million extension, similar to what they obviously a small scale for D'Angelo in terms of dollars given up. But man, um, I don't know. I, what, what do you think was the final straw here in terms of like, well, just to kind of put a ball in the timeline before we talk about the actual trade return itself here uh, to close out uh, because obviously, you know, the flyers were ridiculed quite a bit at the trade deadline for not being able to get anything for James Van Riemsdyk at the time and letting an unrestricted free agent essentially walk without, even if it's a third round pick or something with money retained, at least you have something to show for it. Instead, all they got was, what, like a fifth and a sixth for Zach McEwen and Patrick Brown at the trade yeah. deadline? Like, was was the was it already an eventuality regardless? Or do you feel like that was sort of like the final straw based on just the general reaction to that, that it was like, all right, we cannot be openly ridiculed and like the laughing stock of the league anymore. We have to actually make serious widespread changes here. Or do you think that was already going to be kind of happening anyways? And it was just an organization that was waiting for the season to end to finally pull the trigger on that. So I think it's a little bit more of the latter. What I will say is I think they were already going down the road of rebuilding before the JVR debacle at the deadline. I do think that was the final straw for Chuck Fletcher. I don't like, I think, you know, he, and, and look, the thing with the JVR situation is that it's very possible that he just couldn't have been moved given the fact that, uh, he had the massive cap hit. I talked to people around the league. He really didn't have a lot of interest. Most of the teams that like most of the teams that would have had interest in adding a guy like that either didn't want to have to deal with all the maneuvering that would have, you know, had to clear the space to get a guy with that large of a cap hit, or just didn't think he was fast enough to play in their system in the playoffs, which fair, he's not a very good skater and he's only gotten slower. That said, I think that Chuck Fletcher was going to be let go at the end of the season, regardless. Like, I think that was going to happen. I just think that the response to his inability to trade JVR, fair or not, kind of was the, all right, everyone's this angry. We're going to be getting rid of him at the end of the year anyway. We might as well just cut the cord now because, like, why have him hang around for a month and a half? Let's get Danny on the job because they'd already pretty much decided that he was going to be the guy. Let's mm -hmm. get him on the job for a month and a half. Let him evaluate as the interim GM to decide what he wants to do, you know, get used to it. And then in the summer, we'll restructure the organization the way we see fit. So I think they were going to rebuild regardless. I think that expedited Chuck Fletcher's exit, but I think the rebuild was coming, you know, whether the JVR debacle happened or did. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. What, so we both agree like unanimously, it was just the idea behind the trade was obviously smart. This is something they should have done. Done. Do you feel like what's the what's the feeling around the league in terms of whether it was enough? Because I've seen that's one area where I've seen um, some conflicting opinions. Just because cap space is such a valuable asset, and in particular with the Cal Peterson deal, um, because of his four million dollars signing bonus for this coming summer, if there's a feeling around the league that like basically his market was limited to either the Flyers or the Blackhawks in terms of teams that would actually be willing to acquire him and foot the bill for that. Even some of these other rebuilding teams with theoretical cap space wouldn't have actually been willing to take on that type of money and actually pay him out. 
um, for what he was owed. So in that sense, you know, you can compare it certainly to past kind of cap dumps. There's the Provorov trade. I think you did a good job of delineating in, in your uh, analysis on it on The Athletic. There's the Provorov trade, which you can be like, okay, that's a first and a second, which kind of falls in line with other defensemen that have been traded recently. And then the cap dump portion of it, which is the prospect and the, and the other seconds. Do you feel like that was enough? Do you feel like the execution from Beer's perspective could have been drawing an even harder line and being even more aggressive in squeezing more juice out of the orange? Or do you feel feel like that was kind of all that they were going to get and you just have to jump at that opportunity because you don't know if someone else is going to get in the way in the meantime and you wind up with nothing? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that in an ideal world, Breer would have squeezed a little bit more out of, uh, you know, out, out of the Kings. I don't think maybe that was executed quite as well as it could have been. That said, I think what you noted is is very fair, is that, look, Ivan Provorov for the last three years has not been very good. Hmm. Everyone, everyone around the league knew, dating back to last year, that Ivan Provorov was not popular in the Flyers' room. Everyone around the league knew that Ivan Provorov did not particularly like the idea of, getting, of being involved in a rebuild or playing for John Tortorella. So you're talking about a guy who... In my mind, like in my mind, Danny Breer did not have a ton of leverage in trading Ivan Provorov. There were there were teams interested, but it wasn't everybody. There were going to be a bunch of teams that are like, nah, let's not. Or, hey, I'm in, but like, I'll give you a third. Breer basically was looking at it as I'm getting a first round pick back for this guy. That's the only way I'm going to trade him. Once he had a team willing to do it, but only willing to do it if he cut down on the cap hit, then it became, okay, well... I could retain money, but I know I'm going to have to retain money to trade Kevin Hayes, which I think he's going to trade Kevin Hayes this summer, and that's mm -hmm. going to be retaining money for three years. And you want to probably leave yourself open to having more than one remaining retention slot for the next two seasons since Hayes will be retained for three, Provo will be retained for two. So then you say, okay, we got to get another team, and if I want to keep that flexibility, you get the Kings involved. I actually think that the addition of Sean Walker in this trade is – somewhat more important than people think, especially if the Flyers have designs on maybe moving off of Tony D'Angelo this summer. Because is Walker anything special? No, but he's a right-handed shooting body who can take minutes in a top four role. He's done it before in LA, and it gives you the flexibility to move D'Angelo if you decide to go that route and still have, I'm not saying it's going to be a good defense because it won't be, but it'll at least be functional. And that means you don't have to shoehorn Ronnie Adder or Emil Andre or Igor Zamola into your top four and screw up their development as prospects just because you don't have anybody else. So I think Breer looked at it as, you know, yeah, maybe if I play hardball, could I squeeze, you know, turn that second into two seconds or something like that? But why risk it? I'm getting something here. I'm getting a decent prospect. I'm getting, you know, a defenseman who I can probably get some use out of. And I'm not risking the possibility of Columbus getting cold feet, pulling out on the deal, and then ending up not being able to get a first-round pick for Progroff at all. So, yeah, maybe he could have squeezed out a little bit more, but I also think that there's enough good things going on in this deal to justify just saying, you know what, yeah. We probably got more than we should have gotten for Provera from Columbus. We're probably getting less than we should be getting from the Kings for taking on the salary. In the end, it works out, and we're getting an overall fair return on the whole. 
Well, especially with uh, Helga Grand's piece, right? I th- I was waiting because I, I saw some reports that he was included in this. Then I saw some that didn't include him and just had them getting that extra second. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I think that's actually a very important piece of this puzzle because it seems like he's being sort of taken for granted a little bit from LA side of things, right? Because they are one of the few teams in the league that just have this absolute embarrassment of riches on the right side where it's like, all right, well, we have, you know, Dowdy, uh, Roy, Dursey, Brand Clark coming, Jordan Spence is stuck in the AHL. We can't even find minutes for him. We have all of these guys, so we don't really necessarily need this guy. Now, a 21-year-old right shot defenseman who's 6'3, moves well, has some skill, is a former high prospect. I mean, at EP Rinks out of the start of the year, we had him as the 99th ranked prospect in the entire league uh, that was affiliated with the team. Like, that is a valuable piece here, especially when you're talking about an organization, as I said, in the Flyers that doesn't necessarily have a massive treasure chest of young up and coming players to begin with. So I think that was an important piece of this. And and I think there was desperation from all sides, which is what makes this such like a, a fascinating trade, right? Sometimes teams make trades just for, not necessarily just for the sake of making trades, but it's like, they don't necessarily, they're not under the gun or incentivized to do so. They just do it because something becomes available and they talk themselves into it. In this case, it feels like all three of these teams went into this with like a very clear agenda and motive for getting this done as soon as possible. And so in that sense, it's a fascinating trade and one that actually makes sense for everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, the one side of the deal that I don't love is Columbus because I just don't know. I, I don't know if they're really ready to be spending assets on a player like Provorov, and I'm unconvinced that Provorov is actually going to bounce back to previous levels in Columbus, um, particularly given the fact that, you know, he didn't really click under John Tortorell. I'm quite curious to see how he's going to click under Mike Babcock. Uh, But I can at least understand where they're coming from and that they think that, hey, we turn Ivan Provorov into a number three making less than $5 million on the cap. He can provide real, real value to us there. I get it. I certainly understand it from LA's perspective. They're just trying to clear, clear space to sign Gavrikov and do whatever they, whatever else they want to do, you know, this off season with extra space. And I understand it from the Flyers perspective in that they were trying to get a first round pick for Ivan Provorov. They got that and they accumulated a bunch of assets and re- and launched their rebuild. So yeah, you know, I don't love Columbus's side of it because I'm not really sold on Proveroff anymore. Mm-hmm. But I can see all three sides, and I can see how all three sides come out of this trade thinking they did pretty well. Yeah, I think a player, what, not in, for them, he's going to cost $4.725 million for the next two seasons. I think the price they paid is reasonable, assuming your evaluation of the player is better than maybe the one you or I have. But um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I guess, okay, let's end on this note. Um, so this was the first domino. You mentioned the kind of the Kevin Hayes trade potential. Uh, there's Travis Konechny as well. There was a lot of rumblings around Carter Hart and sort of the timeline on a potential move there as well. What do you think the next shoe to drop is? And and kind of do you have a sense of what that could actually like look like? Yeah, I mean, I think this one may have been a little bit of an anomaly in the sense of how early it happened. Right. I'm not necessarily expecting the Flyers to be making trades every other day up until the draft that said, you know, I'm expecting Kevin Hayes to be moved. I'm from, from a lot of different people. I've heard that Kevin Hayes expects to be moved. Um, I do think that the, uh, the rumors about him ending up at Columbus probably aren't going to happen now, not just because they had a prover off, but because I don't think that Kevin Hayes loves the idea of playing for Mike Babcock. Mm. So Kevin Hayes does have a modified no trade. I wouldn't be surprised if, 
Columbus is now on that modified no trade list. Uh, but I do think that uh, that Hayes will ultimately be moved. Um, Hart is really the the wild card here. Now, what's interesting about Hart is that obviously in the in the immediate wake of the Prover off trade, everybody starts going on Twitter like, oh my God, Carter Hart's going to get moved. There were some reports out there from from people that that sometimes break stories. They're saying, you know, Flyers are discussing a Hart trade. Everyone I talked to close to the situation on all sides basically was like, I don't know where you're hearing this, but nothing's imminent. And I don't think that anything was ever imminent. I don't think that there was ever any intention to immediately follow up a pro trade with a hard trade and then something fell through. That said, the Flyers are absolutely listening. And the people I talked to in the industry, not people that are necessarily affiliated with teams, but people who, you know, generally are good to gossip with because they give you good information. The the general feeling seems to be that a heart trade is more likely than not to happen this summer. That said, I don't think it's a certainty. And I think it's going to require a team really ponying up to get Carter Hart because the hard truth is, like, Carter Hart's 24 years old. He's not an elite goalie, but I think aside from that one disastrous post-pandemic year where he was very clearly dealing with mental health issues, like he's a solidly average to above average goalie who is just 24. So mm-hmm. there really isn't a lot of like there, there aren't a lot of comparables out here to say what a solidly average to above average 24-year-old goalie on a reasonable cap it for the next year is worth on the open market. So Briere kind of has to figure out what he's worth on the open market. And if Briere turns out to be worth a lot on the, or, or Hart turns out to be worth a lot on the open market, then Briere probably should strongly consider moving him. And if he turns out to be worth not that much, then I think Briere can justify saying, hey, he's 24 years old. We can, we can keep him. We can see if the rebuild, we can execute the rebuild in two to three years rather than four to five. And if it's the former, then Hart can be part of it. If he's not, if it's not, then we can maybe try to trade him next offseason and see if the if the offers are better, if he has a good year. So at this point, I would probably put it like 60-40, Hart gets moved. I don't think it's a certainty, but it does sure seem like the winds are blowing in that direction over the next, let's say, two, three, four weeks. Yeah, I would say it makes a lot of sense. Not that there's necessarily should feel itch like oh we got to move him now but you know he's got the 3.979 or whatever his his cap hit is next year and then he's an arbitration eligible rfa after that it gives a added timeline to an acquiring team and i think you know we saw la speculated um we saw toronto thrown out i think buffalo makes a low-key yeah. amount of sense here right we've seen them kind of linked to potentially sorrows or hellebuck in a monster trade i think from like an age core perspective and also splitting a net with the Devin Levi, that would make a very interesting option as a landing spot for me. And I, I think he's pretty good. Like I think last year he ends with a 907. First off, league average was 904. So that's important for context. But the second is he started off really well. And then whenever a goalie drops off the way he did as the year went along on a team like the Flyers, I'm very curious how much of that is kind of like a accumulation effect of just every single night having to play behind a really bad team where you know that you have to be perfect. Otherwise things are going to go south. And so if I was a better team than the flyers, which there are many of in the league right now, (laughs) it would make sense for me. And from the flyers, the best way to tank is to have bad goaltending. So if I were them, I would have no interest in having Carter Harden net next season. I'd much rather roll the dice with now. Let's get Cal Peterson 65 starts. See if he can bounce back next season. So let's see what he can um, do. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense for everyone involved. All right, Charlie, you've been crushing it on this beat. I'll give you a chance here to let the listeners know where they can check you out and what you've got in the works moving forward. 
Yeah. Um, obviously, I, I write for the Athletic. I cover the Flyers. So hopefully we'll be covering the Flyers for quite a long time and leading into them eventually getting better. Um, who, who knows how long that's going to take, but we'll see. Um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Charlie O underscore con. And I'm also a co-host on Broad Street Hockey Radio. Uh, we have a flagship show once a week and then a bunch of other shows. So if you're a Flyers fan, definitely check that out if you haven't. If you're not a Flyers fan, but just like to hear good, fun hockey talk, also worth a listen. We have a bunch of shows that might uh, you might have interest in. And uh, that's pretty much where I'm at. Just plugging along and ready for the busy part of the offseason. All right, buddy. Well, enjoy the offseason. Keep up the great work. It was good to have you on under some slightly more encouraging circumstances. And we'll hopefully chat with you again soon. Thank you to everyone for listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast. We've let Charlie O'Connor go. He did his job on the Flyers part of this trade. We're now going to tag in my buddy Russell Morgan to talk about it from a Kings perspective. Russell, what's going on, man? What's going on, Dimitri? Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, no, I'm excited. So on the first half of the show, we had Charlie O'Connor on. We talked about the big Ivan Provorov trade um, from, I guess, Tuesday afternoon uh, from the Flyers perspective, right? I wanted to get into it now with you from the Kings perspective because... I know that they technically all they have to show for it in terms of like personnel coming in is Hayden Hodgson and former Canucks legend, Kevin Connaughton. Um, <laughs> but you can make a very fair argument that their side of this trade is the most interesting one. And certainly the one that's going to be the most consequential for short-term impact, just because of the money they were able to clear out how they were able to do it. And then what they're going to turn around and already have used it on uh, in the meantime, so I kind of wanted to get into that with you in terms of all the parts that they moved out and sort of how it's all going to fit. So they give up Helge Grands, they give up the 2024 second, they take on 2.025 million of Provorov's cap hit over the next two seasons, which is a 30% salary retention. And in doing so, they move off of Sean Walker's contract, right? That had one year left at 2.65. And most importantly, Cal Peterson's contract. Now, I'm not sure um, how much you've sort of spoken about this or, or, or what you've heard. But from my intel that I've gathered, it seems like not too many te- not too many teams were understandably interested in taking on Cal Peterson's contract. But the fact that he also had the four million dollars signing bonus that's due to him this summer precluded most of the sort of you know teams we typically associate with these types of deals and taking on these contracts, like the Arizonas or even potentially in Anaheim. They didn't really have much appetite in in trading for a guy that they had to sign a four million dollar check to immediately. So that really left teams like the Flyers or maybe the Blackhawks as like big market teams with deep pockets that could conceivably be interested in a trade like that. So with the market so limited, the general consensus around the league is that while LA did give up a little bit, certainly it's not nothing, they got off pretty easy for the most part just because they didn't have that much leverage. Everyone knew they were desperate to do this type of trade. And so to be able to facilitate it, people are viewing that as a win for Rob Blake. Yeah, I mean, right now in this day and age in the NHL, salary cap or cap space in general is probably one of the big assets a team could have. And and for the Kings, in order to uh, address a lot of the other issues that they want and, and to build onto this contender status that they're looking to become, 
I mean, they had to find a, a way to get rid of Cal Peterson's contract. I mean, it's it's easier said than done to trade away a goalie that was arguably one of, if not the worst goaltender in the, in the NHL last year, and then got sent to the AHL and didn't didn't do much better down there. Um, and then also, you, you didn't even mention the the modified no trade clause he had tied to his contract mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, I mean, it's it was something you kind of look at the the Kings roster as a whole and. Everybody looked at Cal Peterson's contract as being the the main uh, deal that they had to try to move. But um, the fact that Rob Blake found a partner in order to get it done, it, it almost surprised. It surprised myself. I mean, you you kind of as soon as I saw Elliot Freeman tweeted out, I was like, oh wow, Rob Blake actually figured it out. But um, you were all we were all kind of waiting to see how expensive this would be. And I, I give I give a little bit of praise uh, to to Rob Blake here uh, by I, I think the cost wasn't as high as many anticipated it to be um, to trade away a goaltender with uh, that that contract of five million dollars and not to mention you mentioned this the signing bonus too uh, and only only to give out uh, a second round pick and I guess kind of a, a mid tier to maybe high tier prospect in Helge Granz who who really was kind of limited in terms of his path to the, path to the NHL on, on mm-hmm. the Kings with Brant Clark and, and, and Jordan Spence ahead of him. And uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good win for uh, Rob Blake. It is. Yeah. Uh, Cal Peterson for those scoring at home, 10 games last year in the NHL sport logic had him at negative 12.5 goal save above expected in those 10 games, which seems <laughs> almost impossible to believe. Now a lot of that is inflated by that one particularly catastrophic performance against Seattle, right? In that game that we all enjoyed watching. I'm sure Cal Peterson did not enjoy it as much. Um, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, losing, you know, losing. It, uh, Grands here is in the eye of the beholder, right? Because for the Kings, it's they're one of the few teams who are positioned to make a trade like this without really losing sleep over it, right? They, as you mentioned, the path to the NHL, whether it's Dowdy, Matt Roy, Dursey, Brand Clark, Jordan Spence, like they're they have enough options on the right side where you couldn't really even see him factoring into their plans anytime soon, regardless of what he did. Now you don't necessarily want to be in the business of just giving away cost controlled right shot defensemen just because you have a lot of them. Cause eventually you're going to run dry on that. And it's a very valuable resource to have a lot of, um, but at the yeah. same time to facilitate a deal like this, right? Like the reason why people feel like it, it they got off relatively easy was they save what 5.625 million, this year, you save about $3 million next year as well. And I don't want to give Blake Rob Blake too much credit just because he is technically the one who did sign Cal Peterson, not that anyone expected at the time of signing for it to go this south this quickly. But the fact that he was able to then in a timely manner get off of it the way that he did does deserve praise. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to consider kind of how all of this came together because pretty much within the next 24 hours, right? The, the Vladislav Gavrikov extension comes into place and it essentially slides very neatly into that exact amount of money that they cleared for next season. So I don't know, is there anything else from this side of the trade from the Kings that you think is worth noting here? Or do you want to just segue into, into the Gavrikov part of it? Yeah, I think the Helga Grand situation is kind of interesting because he, he came in, there were some draft uh draft guys who had Granz as a first round pick in his mm-hmm. draft class. And, and that was also a draft class in the same round the Kings took Brock Faber in. So you're looking at two 
pretty high profile prospects at the time that are now not on the Kings roster anymore or in the organization with Faber being included in the Fiala trade just last year. So that's an interesting aspect of it. So I'm, I'm not too, in terms of Helga Granz, I think there's still a player there, an NHL caliber player there. Um, he had a little bit of a down year last year with the Ontario Reign, but I think if, if he can be put, put in the right system and, and with the right coaching, I, I mean, you're, you're looking at a six foot four defenseman who can skate really well. So I, I think they're, the Flyers, if, if they're able to develop him a little bit more, um, they can find a good player in there. And then the Cal Peterson situation, again, just kind of looking back on, on that contract. Yeah, it's hard to kind of separate the two in terms of the contract signed at the time. I look back at some of the stats. I mean, it's not like he kind of had eye-popping stats, but his his contract was signed just a few months after his uh, stint at the World Championships in 2021, where he was named the best goaltender in the World Championships. And he, I think he had two shutouts, uh, led the USA team to, to the bronze medal there. So there was a lot of hype coming up from the, the Cal Pearson train there. But as soon as that contract was signed, man, I mean, he just – hasn't looked good so we'll we'll see what happens there within philly but uh, yeah the cap the cap space maneuver from rob lick's perspective um is just a, is one of the good moves to kind of lead into the gavrikov extension yeah i mean in this flat cap environment we're only expecting the cap to go up by another one million dollars for next season um you're kind of at the mercy of the market or of of how um hard of a line the other gms that do have cap space and there's very few of them and have owners who are willing to also take on money to help facilitate trades like this um are, are willing to draw right or essentially how easily they're allowed to get you off the hook and so in this case it's not a nothing price and, and certainly as we talked about in in part one of today's show from the flyers perspective i really like the logic of of going this route the way that they did but for the kings i think it was it was a reasonable price to pay to free up what they did and so they turn around and they give vladislav gavrikov a five point eight seven five million dollar deal uh for two seasons which slides neatly into that cap space opened up and you know at first blush for me russell i i was surprised right because before the contract even came out kevin weeks i believe put out that report that gabrikov's camp was really pushing for a two-year term right and and i think we're so programmed to when players like this around that 27 28 year old range who are coming off of um you know their most recent sample of games is strong. So they're coming into free agency with leverage and with, like coming on on a high note. We're used to those players immediately turning around and then just trying to squeeze out every single dollar they can to maximize their earning power, right? And to get that security and get that long-term deal, acknowledging that it might be the last time they have a chance like this to cash in. And so we're used to seeing that. And so hearing a guy like Avrakov be like, no, I'd actually prefer it to your deal was a bit surprising. Now, you give it a bit more thought, you look at the actual details of the contract, and it starts to make a lot more sense in terms of what him and his agent were thinking. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to cash cash in on that UF, another UFA uh, situation where salary cap goes up a little bit more, the TV deal starts kicking, and, and teams have a lot more money to spend. So if he can hit that UFA window again when he's, what, I think he'll be 29 again. Yeah, going he'll be into 30 in the first month. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, going into his age 30 season, I mean, he can cash in once again and get even uh, probably a higher number than what he got now. I'm I, I'm really excited for this contract between the player he got what he wanted, and I think the team did really well here too. I mean, a five year deal for a player like Gavrikov scares me to mm -hmm. be honest with you. I mean, especially at the at the money he was looking for. So 
when you're able to get, I mean, it, just to kind of go back to the trade itself, I think uh, myself and uh, my colleagues over at Hockey Royalty too, we were a little bit skeptical of the trade. I think you had sent me a, a, a compilation of uh, some of the Jacob Chikrin highlights mm-hmm. from his defensive uh, uh, prowess, I guess, in Arizona. So when uh, the Chikrin uh, rumors were all tied to the Kings, everyone was excited with, oh, man, we can get a player like Jacob Chikrin. And then when that didn't come to fruition and all of a sudden Gavrikov comes over, everyone's like, oh, man, we get a player like Gavrikov. You kind of see his underlying numbers with Columbus. And you almost get a little disappointed. But, I mean, that wasn't the case. I, I had to eat a lot of crow for that. He played out of his mind, I think, with the, in his short time with L.A. And he fit right in on that pairing with Matt Roy. Um and was pretty much one of the best Kings defenders going into the playoff series against Edmonton. So, yeah, to, to have a two-year deal, it, it just feels right in terms of ha- helping out the player to get the situation he wants to hit that UFA window again. And then also from a Kings perspective, you get a player pretty much in his prime who's going to be looking to play well and try to cash in once again in order to get that, that uh, high contract he's looking for uh, hitting UFA. So I, I think it works well. And I think both the, the Kings and the player did, did good here. Yeah. I mean, from the Kings perspective, I, I'd love to have heard or seen Rob Blake's reaction when he found out that all they wanted was a two-year deal, right? It's like, oh, we don't yeah, have to right? commit to the thirties. And, and, you know, if, if this next two years go well and he doesn't show signs of regression or decline, then we can kind of revisit that I'm sure. And we'll see what the cap looks like at that point. But the fact that you don't have to make that decision now is seems like an absolute slam dunk from the team perspective for the player. He gets a full no move, right? 87% of his contract money is tied up in signing bonuses, including a pretty hefty, I think like 5.725 this summer in terms of the signing bonus that'll be paid out. So that's very alluring. And he enters the market, as you said, before he turns 30 in the summer of 2025. And there is a lot of optimism that the cap will legitimately spike by then. I know it's kind of like, this is that recurring character in sitcoms, right? We keep referring to it, but it never actually shows up. This 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 heralded cap spike that we keep expecting will hopefully happen oh, eventually. Coming. It seems like it'll happen by then. And, you know, Gavrikov's agent, Dan Milstein, certainly seems to have a lot invested in that happening because he'd made a nearly carbon copy deal with his client, Andre Kuzmenko, and the Canucks this season as well. I, was, I believe it was a $5.5 million deal. But for two years, and at the time, people were like, huh, I would have expected him to look for longer term and cash in on his immediate success. And instead, he similarly will be an unrestricted free agent around 30 years old at uh, in that exact same summer. So it's interesting that Milstein himself is, is positioning himself as potentially a huge winner in the summer of 2025 if things play out that way. Um, you know, on Gavrikov, I'm with you. I I thought I was I was wary because I generally his player type, especially like guy who eats a lot of minutes on a bad team and is considered to be defensively responsible, but that's just because they block a lot of shots. That that to me is always like a very concerning skill set or or archetype of player to rely on, especially be like, oh well, if we put him on a better team, he's magically gonna get better. But that's almost what happened here, right? Like it was such a seamless fit. He improved so much in every respect. To the point where, you know, in the 20 regular season games he played in LA, he was behind only Drew Doughty in usage on the team. So they relied on him quite a bit. And he got to play with Matt Roy, which I think was a big improvement from previously playing with guys like Andrew Peake and Anders Bjork and whoever else he was playing with in Columbus. And all of his underlying numbers skyrocketed. He looked to the eye significantly better as a player. And so I understand the excitement of like, nice, we get to just keep this guy for two more years 
at this price, like that seems like it is truly a win-win both for the team, as I mentioned, and for the player. Yeah, his play style fits perfectly for the Kings. I mean, they play that one-three-one system. They're really system dedicated, and to have his, I mean, I think his real strengths are his his ability to use utilize his stick in the defensive zone or at the blue line, and we saw that time and time again in the short time he was with LA, just constantly breaking up uh, zone entries, and it was really a lot of a lot of stuff that we had seen. Um, things he didn't do well in Columbus just do so well in LA, which was was kind of strange. But I don't know. I mean, when you have when you have a player like that, and I think a lot of it has to go to do with uh, um, people in Los Angeles. They're just so accustomed to that Daryl Sutter type of play uh, that we were used to seeing during the Stanley Cup years, where it's just so focused on defensive oriented and, and just try to limit those zone zone entries and then that one three one system, but. I'm starting to get to the point where when you have players like Brant Clark and Jordan Spence coming up in the system, I'd like to see a little bit more excitement, a little bit more dynamic playmaking ability. So that's why I'm so happy that they weren't able to, they weren't tied to Gavrikov so such long-term because that seems like he's, he's only really fit for that defensive style. Although we, we saw a little bit more of a hybrid offensive style come, come to him a mm-hmm. little bit more uh, in the short time with LA. So I wonder if, if, if the Kings will stick to that one, three, one system, or maybe we see a little bit more fluidity in that. Maybe they, add, they add a little bit more creativity from the defensive playmakers uh, with the, the young stars coming up. Yeah. Well, he can, you can, you can keep him with Matt Roy, who he had a lot of success with on that kind of second pair last year. Or if you're trying to sort of transition some of these younger, more skilled defensemen to the league, you, you coaches generally like to attach those types of players two guys like Gavrikov, right, who, who provide a bit of a safety blanket. And so there's certainly options Absolutely. there for them to explore. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting because, you know, like certainly his quality of partner and teammates improved. His One of the concerns in Columbus was like, oh, they're just relying on him too much. Like they're, he, he's playing too many minutes. That's why he's struggling. He actually was used more at five on five in L.A. than he had been in Columbus. The big difference was they they cut down on his penalty kill minutes quite a bit, and maybe that helped sort of preserve him a little bit more. And they cut down on his defensive zone starts as well, right? And so he got to play in a bit more of a favorable environment, certainly. But the numbers just skyrocketed about as extremely as you're going to see in season for a player switching teams. And in the playoffs, they were relying on him in the McDavid matchup minutes where he did quite well as well, right? So um, there's certainly a lot to like there. I don't know. Is there anything else on... Gavrikov that you think is is notable or interesting here or or do you want to kind of just quickly look ahead to maybe what's next for the Kings now now that they have him in place now that they made this uh move to to clear up the money to facilitate it kind of what the rest of the offseason looks like for them and sort of what the what the agenda should be yeah just real quick on Gavrikov I think uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is that he was able to acclimate himself into the locker room really quickly I mean his personality just fits so well um, pretty, I mean, his type of personality could fit pretty well with any team. So, um, the fact that he was able to come over with Corpusalo and, and those two kind of, um, became so friendly with a lot of Kings players and, and a lot of the families, I think, uh, kind of helped, uh, make his welcome to LA a little bit easier. I'm sure, I'm sure that helps a little bit, but, um, just kind of looking ahead to the, to the Kings off season as a whole. I mean, there's obviously a hole in, in, in net. Um, you only have Phoenix Copley as the only goaltender with NHL experience. So I'm curious to see what happens there, um, whether they want to just kind of go value signing, uh, looking at the free agent pool, because there's plenty of goaltenders that are probably going to be mm-hmm. available. Or you go after that big name, maybe like a Connor Hellebuck, and we've heard uh, maybe even UC Saros' name floating out there. 
but the Kings are still pretty much cap tied. So I don't know if they'd have to move move more money out. Uh, I've seen Victor Arvidsson's name floated out there. Uh, you have a player like Alex Iafalo, who's at that $4 million cap hit for two more years. Um, so those could be two more names that you hear maybe floated out there in rumors. Um, but um, if I've known Rob Blake at the, his time as GM, he likes to really get as much value as he can and try to hold on to his assets. Um, and from the trades that he's made, just, I mean, just this Philadelphia trade alone, he's had to give up uh, some assets and to kind of make up for his mistake in the Cal Pearson signing already. So I wonder if maybe he goes a little bit more of the value route on in goaltending, maybe pick up a player like Varlamov or, or Freddie Anderson or Ronta, some, some one of those names mm. as opposed to one of the big names. Well, similar to what we're seeing with Vegas, I think they had the luxury of what the defensive environment they have in place that, you know, I know they, I know they had goalies that struggled at the start of last year before the Corpus Hall trade, but it's still a situation where I wouldn't necessarily invest heavy resources in trying to get a brand name goalie. Cause I feel like you can, you can draw pretty good results out of players who might be those value signings that you're mentioning. Yeah. I mean, they've got 76 million in commitments for next year on 11 forwards, five defensemen and a goalie. So it still will be pretty tight with the Velarde and uh, and Kupari RFA deals to come as well. They need that goalie. I still keep. I'm I'm so fascinated to see. I still think they are a big threat in the trade market to add another scoring forward and potentially consolidate some of these like prospects they've drafted over the past couple of years and and sort of cost controlled young players into one more big star. That's, that's still in an age range that makes sense for this team, right? It's not necessarily an all-in move on like a veteran, but it's something that I'd like to see them explore. And, you know, given the market, given the trajectory of this organization and the team, similar to what we saw, how they were able to accommodate and execute the Kevin Fiala move last summer, right? I think I think keeping your powder dry for a potential star who becomes available, who wants to come and play on this team is something that should be uh, a big point of emphasis for Rob uh, Blake and the Kings moving forward. So I'm kind of curious to see how they navigate all that. Russell, um, it was fun to finally have you on the show and talk about this trade. I'll let you quickly on the way out, uh, plug some stuff and let the listeners know where they can check you out. Yeah, you can check uh, out my work at hockeyroyalty.com. Uh, we have a hockey royalty podcast, YouTube show, all that fun stuff. Uh, find me on Twitter at NHL Russell. Um, but Dimitri, I just want to say, I mean, I, I listened to the hockey PDO podcast uh, quite a bit. You do such a good job at uh, describing and, and almost illustrating uh, a player's impacts to the fact that when I'm listening, I could almost see the highlight of the player in front of me or even just in my mind. And so I, I love the work that you do. And we also, me and my colleague, Joe Paterino, we, we appreciate the Blake Lazat phrase too out here in, in LA. So uh, looking forward to uh, uh, some more fun uh, work from you in the off season here. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for the kind words. I love Blake Lazat, big fan, and uh, and we'll keep up that praise coming as well. Um, enjoy the uh, the rest of the offseason here. Looking forward to your coverage. We'll have you back on the show. Thank you to the listeners for checking us out today. We'll be back tomorrow with more regularly scheduled programming on the Stanley Cup Final. We'll talk about Game 3 and all that good stuff. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network.